This is Rachel Fields with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. A provision in Governor Evers' proposed state budget would carve out an exception for bars in Milwaukee to stay open later during the Republican National Convention next year. Currently, bars in the state must close by 2.30 a.m., but Evers hopes to extend that to 4 a.m. during the planned convention, which is likely to bring tens of thousands of people to Milwaukee, according to the Associated Press. The measure would go before the Republican-controlled legislature, who rejected a similar measure when Milwaukee was scheduled to host the Democratic National Convention in 2020. A new survey put together by the Dane County Regional Housing Strategy Committee found that a majority of Dane County residents think that housing in the region is too expensive. The survey, which attempted to measure Dane County residents across all income brackets, found that 61% of respondents said that housing in the region is too expensive and that 80% of respondents did not think housing was attainable for all. The Regional Housing Strategy is a committee with representatives from local governments, developers, and nonprofits, and it is hoping to form a three- to five-year action plan that it will present in September of this year, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Results of the survey will help shape the policy proposals the group will put forward, and it is also soliciting public input and holds open meetings at the Alliant Energy Center every month. The Madison Public Market Project announced that it has met its private funding goal of $3 million and can now move ahead with the project, according to the Capital Times. The public market, which is planned to be at the junction of 1st Street and East Johnson Street, will be an indoor market with local food sellers and other local businesses. The project has been in the works for over a decade, with recent delays due to COVID and increased construction costs. Now, having secured the last round of private funding, the project will go before the Joint Review Board in April for final governmental approval. If the project is approved, it will likely begin breaking ground on construction later this year and open early in 2025. The Madison Metropolitan School District is still struggling to fulfill requests for substitute teachers and staff, according to data acquired by the Capital Times. The data shows that only around 50 to 60 percent of all substitute teacher requests were met by the district during the fall semester. Paraprofessional substitute requests for school positions like special education assistance were even worse, with the fill rate hovering between 30 and 40 percent. On days when it cannot meet substitute requests, the district can use central office personnel to cover the deficit, although it is unclear to what extent the district is doing so. The Wisconsin Policy Forum is hosting a debate between Madison's mayoral candidates tonight from 6 to 7.30 at the Madison Central Library. The debate will be between current mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway and former Madison School Board President Gloria Reyes. Topics are expected to include the city's budget, the affordable housing crisis, the planned bus rabbit transit, and public safety. The debate is open to the public and can be watched via live stream on Wisconsin Eye. It's almost the end of Black History Month, and state lawmakers have been bringing relevant programming to the state capitol and throughout the state. WORT reporter Kelsey Krogan headed down to the capitol last Friday for a seminar on climate change, food security, and health inequities. Up the marble stairs to a room on the fourth floor of the state capitol, where a roundtable of experts highlighted how the effects of climate change impact communities of color from food scarcity to health inequities. 
The discussion ranged from global events to current disparities on a local level. The event was hosted by Representative Samba Balde, a Democrat from Madison and a former city council alder. As someone who immigrated to the U.S. from Gambia, Balde highlighted how the effects of climate change don't follow political boundaries. The, the issue with climate change really is, 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 uh, goes beyond just poor communities and communities of color. And that's why I believe many serious uh, well-off countries and people are serious about it because ultimately this is one thing that you cannot control. You can gerrymander to a certain extent, but there's a limit as to how far you can take that gerrymandering before it comes to bite you uh, at the bag or something. Also present were other former or current Madison Council members. Former City Council President Syed Abbas, who resigned as Alder in November, points out what's global is local. He work in my experience, so when I came to the Common Council, I was like, okay, let's start working how we could change the world. And climate is really, every politics is local in its nature. And we cannot live in silos. What policies we are making here in Wisconsin, in Madison, have a global impact. As data shows, 20% of newborn kids died because of preterm and because of the air pollution, 20% globally. Abbas points to his advocacy for affordable housing through some of the first tax legislation the city has implemented. Uh, in the history of Madison, first time in my own district, we created tax incremental district just for affordable housing project. Historically, tax increment district is created to increase economic mobility, which is true. And when, and the age when the tax incremental district get mature, when they get mature, just before they close, last two years, that money is used as a TIF, tax incremental financing for affordable housing. But in this situation, first time in history of City of Madison, we created TID just to support that project and make sure there is a sound mitigation is part of that project so we don't impact low-income and minority uh, uh, who lives in that district. Current Alder Nazra Wahili, who represents a portion of the southwest side of the city, spoke about disparities in her previous home of Somalia. Africa has experienced higher temperatures, rising sea levels, changing rainfall patterns, and increased climate variability, all of which could affect much of its population. The actual impact of climate change in East Africa are large and wide, ranging, affecting many aspects of people's everyday lives, including agriculture, production of food security, in large parts in the uh, uh, Horn of Africa, Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia. The higher temperature, the drying of soils, increased pest and diseases pressure, shift in suitable areas of growing crops and livestock. So it has impacted a lot and not knowing and not having the resources to educate about the farmers is really challenging. She says weak infrastructure and underdevelopment, whether at home or abroad, impacts indigenous communities and communities of color more than most. Fellow UW-Madison professor Josh Garoon researches how health development and the environment manifest in local health inequities. He says the time in the climate change and health intersection, this environmental justice and climate change and environment intersection, you see a focus put on local people, indigenous people. You're starting to see all the time, 70 percent of the most biodiverse and climate sensitive land is under the governorship of indigenous people. And that's 
you, you can split these numbers one way or the other, but for the sake of argument, let's just say sure. But what's keeping those people on those lands? And some of it's passion for land, right? Part of it is, is social and cultural and political, but part of it is also the ability, as, as everyone has spoken to here, being able to make a livelihood. And if that starts disappearing under the pressure of climate changes, the numbers go up mm -hmm. and up and up. And what worries me from a health perspective is both what's going on on the ground in those areas that, that people are leaving. And again, this is what happens when an already fraught situation where you don't have clean drinking water runs up against even less water, runs up against even lower conditions for sanitation and hygiene. A recent UW-Madison study outlines how climate change is already harming our health in Wisconsin. In one example, researchers project that Milwaukee will see three times as many days with a heat index above 105 degrees. They argue that increasing and longer-lasting heat events will particularly impact older adults and poor residents who live in places susceptible to heat islands. Friday's event almost wraps up a month of Black History celebrations and seminars put on by the Legislative Black Caucus. A Black Lobby Day at the Capitol tomorrow will close out the month. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Kelsey Krogan. As Wisconsin's caregiver shortage continues to grow, more and more adults with disabilities and older Wisconsinites are being left out to dry, with some even needing to leave their homes to receive care. Last Thursday, the city's Disability Rights Commission heard from both caregivers and people with disabilities to hear how the caregiver crisis is affecting their lives. WORT producer Nate Wegehout has more. According to a recent report from the Wisconsin Assisted Living Association, over 18,000 people with disabilities sought and were denied services for long-term caregivers in Wisconsin last year. The leading cause of those denials, a lack of available caregivers. The report states that the number of unfilled caregiver positions in Wisconsin is steadily growing, with 24% of positions unfilled in 2020 and 28% of positions unfilled in 2022. Last Thursday, Madison's Disability Rights Commission heard from both caregivers and those needing care about how the caregiver's crisis is affecting them. The issue was brought forward by District 12 Alder Barbara Vetter. Herself in a wheelchair, Vetter says that she needs help every morning and evening getting in and out of bed. But right now, she only has access to a caregiver three mornings a week, meaning that she has to seek help from family members the other four days. Speaking at Thursday's meeting was Vetter's son, Eknatan Vetter, who says that he personally had to take time off of work to care for his mother. I've been on disability from my position at Metro and therefore been able to help a fair bit in the last, you know, number of weeks. My dad was bedridden for uh, more than a week. If I hadn't been on uh, disability, I'm not quite sure what would have happened, you know, to our family, to Barbara. According to a November 2022 report from the Survival Coalition, a group of organizations across the state advocating for people with disabilities, families currently provide around 80 percent of the care for children and adults with disabilities and older adults in Wisconsin. But for those who don't have the option of relying on family to provide care, the caregiver shortage could mean having to leave their home. Karen Foxgrover, who spoke at the meeting, had to be moved into a local hospital last year after she was dropped by her home caregiver agency due to the high needs she required. 
She says that just because she has high at-home needs, she doesn't want to be forgotten. People are going to be aging and they're going to be needing more help all the time. We just have to remember that we're people with disabilities. We're not a problem. We are people that need help. And we are smart people that can give you lots of really great ideas. One of the largest drivers of the current caregiver crisis is pay. The state currently provides around $19 per hour per patient to caregiver agencies, which has to be spread between caregiver pay, insurance, and administrative costs. What this boils down to, says a 2020 report from the state's task force on caregiving, is just $12 an hour pay for personal care workers. Amanda Zahner formerly worked as an at-home caregiver for Barbara Vetter and now attends Marquette University's physician assistant program. She says that she saw firsthand how the low pay is driving people out of the profession. I loved doing the job during my time, so I was okay with how little I was paid. I did struggle financially more than others who did jobs that paid a lot more. At this point, any convenience store or fast food pays more than personal care worker jobs. And I'm not saying that those jobs aren't important, but this job has a lot of challenges and those challenges need to be compensated better. While the Disability Rights Commission planned to discuss how the city could address the issue, the meeting had to be cut short as not enough commission members could finish the meeting. Older Vetter has proposed multiple different strategies to bring more caregivers to Madison, including providing free bus passes to caregivers and reaching out to neighborhood associations to help recruiting efforts. The biggest way the city could make a difference, however, is lobbying the state legislature to increase Medicaid funding to adequately pay caregivers. Kim Turner is the executive director of Options in Community Living, a nonprofit organization that provides caregiver services to adults with disabilities in Dane County. She says that the low pay that caregivers receive is an equity issue. Historically and today, direct support jobs have been predominantly filled by people of color, people who are recent immigrants to this country, and more often than not, women. The organization I work for tries to put every penny we can into wages and benefits, yet we're unable to pay family supporting wages for direct support staff. We have employees who work a second full-time job just to make ends meet. It's unacceptable for the staff and for the people being supported. Governor Tony Evers has included multiple proposals in his proposed 2023 budget to address the caregiver shortage, including raising caregiver pay and expanding the state's WIS caregiver program to hire more qualified caregivers. The city's Disability Rights Commission will discuss possible ways the city can address the caregiver crisis themselves at their next meeting on March 23rd. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. That time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Gene Delcourt. Thanks for joining us. It's Monday night. Do you know where your government is and what it's doing? This week on Forward Lookout, Dillard Brogan and Brenda Conkle break down what's happening this week across the city and the county. 
And on the line, we have Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com to review what's happening this week in local government. We'll start with Dane County, of course. And let's let's skip right till Tuesday, okay? The Board of Canvassers did meet, so if you have any interest in that, uh, that happened today. But we're going to skip till Tuesday at 530 for the Public Protection and Judiciary Committee. Seems like kind of an important one this week. Yeah, that was kind of unusual, but they have a whole section where they're going to be hearing about eviction process. So they have the Dane County yeah. Court Council that's going to be coming in, as well as the Sheriff's Office. And of course, the Sheriff's Office does actually serve the eviction notice if it gets to that far. You know, once the court has made a decision, then then that's the notice that the Sheriff's Office um, uh, does. And oh, and agreements to, to house uh, Dane County Jail inmates in other counties and the counties that they are looking at are Oneida, Rock, and Iowa. I think Iowa and Rock are a lot closer than Oneida, um, but <laughs> they got three different resolutions on that. So yeah, pretty interesting uh, agenda for, for the evening. Yeah, well, all stemming back to the jail debate, at least in terms of sending inmates uh, to yeah. other counties. But, you know, and I don't know if you saw that Cap Time story about evictions, Part of what this personal property thing is, if like you had like kind of a mom and pop landlord that didn't make you sign some draconian lease, it's really like the landlord who seemed like they got screwed. Did you read that story at all? Oh, I did not read that story. But, you know, it, it is smaller landlords um, are in a completely different uh, position than than the larger management companies. And um, yeah, it, it, it depends upon what kind of, what's in the lease and, and what they said was going to happen. So Yeah, everyone, everyone should check out that story because I thought it was very interesting how like you have a decent landlord and they're the ones who get screwed essentially with this uh, for storage fees and stuff. But anyway, let's move on to um, what, what about what's happening with the Equal Opportunities Commission at 530 on, that's also Tuesday. Yeah, that's that's also interesting. Um, they will be getting a presentation um, from Wes Sparkman, who's the director of the um, Equity and Inclusion Office for the county. Um, and they'll be getting a, a slideshow orientation or refresher about what the EOC does. But then they're also getting a report. And the if you look on the reports, it has the final report from the Henry Bylas Sue Independent Investigation from George Bailey mm. Rin. So um, that may be of interest to some folks folks. Um, they were investigating discrimination that was happening there. All right. Well, our time is short today, so let's go right to the city of Madison and the Common Council, uh, who are meeting virtually at 6.30 on Tuesday. So what's the Common Council up to? Probably one of the bigger things people have been hearing about is that family definition in the zoning Aren't code. they going to put that <laughs> off? Aren't they going to refer that? I know that people are pushing to wait until after the election so they don't have to yeah. face the consequences during the election. So it'll be interesting to see. I, I believe there's also a compromise coming up or maybe an amendment that might make it pass. So we'll see once what they do with that. Then they also will be looking at street superintendent is up for his five-year term and he's also going to be the public okay. works team leader which means he gets a little bit of additional money and sort of coordinates between various departments um there'll be the fourth quarter report from chief sean barnes from the madison police department and then there's a a bunch of other um sort of routine type items madison golf um, they have a code of conduct for uh, madison golf courses um and there is a whole bunch of ordinances that are uh, Grant Foster, Alder Grant Foster, has been working on repealing some things that no longer make sense in our in our code. So um, there's a whole bunch of those at the end, and there are a few other items. Um, they're going to be um, doing the polling locations for the spring election. Not much time to to get that done, and then they're also going to be looking at how they honor outgoing alders and having more of a 
a process for that because that can be a very long meeting as anybody knows who's tried to what the alders who are getting sworn in wait a very long time while we ha they have uh, honoring resolutions for each of the alders that's leaving the council it's pledge week so we encourage everyone to donate to help WORT. Um, but that's uh, why we have so little time today, unfortunately. So let's just talk about the Common Council Executive Committee at 530. And that's happening on Wednesday. So yeah, but I think some more more cleanup of processes uh, in the works. Um, right now, it, uh, the way they determine what goes on the city council agenda is they rotate each department. So the same departments don't get stuck to the end of the meeting every time. Um, but they're going to stop doing that. So that's one proposal that they have in front of them. Um, they also have um, something about clarifying allowable actions taken on the day an item is introduced. I think there's Whoa. been some things that have happened uh, behind the scenes that the people are unhappy about. Um, and then they are also going to be looking at uh, exempting some boards, committees, and commissions from recording their meetings. Um, and then they're going to continue talking about all their onboarding and training. Well, I don't like that. They should record them all. They if should they can, they should. They absolutely should record them all. <laughs> it's but, been like revolutionary. Yeah. Why the heck wouldn't they? Yeah, well, mm, we're going to look into that one. Yeah, transparency. Brenda Conkle, uh, the most transparent person <laughs> I know. Thank you so much for all the work you do for WRT. All right, thank and you. And the city and the county. Just thank you. All right, and I'll make sure I get my pledge in. Tomorrow is the anniversary of the Seattle Black Panthers armed protest against a gun control measure passed by the Washington State Legislature in 1969. Although lesser known than other chapters like Oakland or Chicago, the Seattle Panthers did similar work and lasted until 1977. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. Tomorrow, Tuesday, is the anniversary of the Black Panthers armed protest of the passage of the state gun control bill in Olympia, Washington, on February 28, 1969. Eight Seattle Panthers stood on the Capitol steps holding rifles and shotguns to oppose the bill passed by the legislature the day before. The bill made exhibiting firearms or other weapons to intimidate others a misdemeanor. A state patrol officer, the only uniformed officer on the scene that day, told the Panthers they could not carry loaded weapons onto the Capitol grounds. As Panther leader Elmer Dixon recalled later, he replied, Loaded means nothing in the chamber and showed his rifle to the officer, saying, We do not have any rounds in the chamber. The ammunition is in our clips. Nothing in the chamber. The Panthers removed the ammunition from the clips with no arrests or violation of the law. With the Panthers on the Capitol steps, Aaron Dixon, Elmer's brother and chapter captain, entered the building with an armed party member and delivered a short statement to the legislature. The Panthers held the doors shut, forcing the legislators to listen to the five-minute speech. Aaron and his colleague came out of the Capitol, and the Panthers headed back to Seattle. Despite the protest, Governor Evans approved and signed the gun control legislation that day. Before the year was out, the Panthers' phase of carrying weapons openly ended. But that day, the Panthers had made their point. In a 2018 interview, lifelong activist Elmer Dixon said of the Panthers, We did not fear death. 
and we did not fear the consequences because we had our principles. We were revolutionary and ready to die for the people. That was the mindset of the revolutionary and the mindset of the Panthers. If you had fear, you had no business being in the Black Panther Party. The Seattle Party had been established the prior April by a group of young activists, including Aaron and his brother, Elmer James Dixon III. They grew up in a downtown neighborhood and were inspired by the local civil rights movement. The young Aaron Dixon heard Dr. King speak during a Seattle visit in 1961. In 1966, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale founded the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California. When Stokely Carmichael, head of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, spoke at Garfield High in 1967, both brothers were present. Carmichael left SNCC for the Panthers shortly after his talk. That same year, Aaron graduated from Garfield and started attending the University of Washington, where he joined the Black Student Union and helped form a local SNCC chapter. In April of 68, at the funeral of Panther member Robert Lil Bobby James Hutton in California, the brothers and several other organizers from Seattle met co-founder Bobby Seal and expressed interest in starting a Seattle chapter. A week later, Seal arrived in Seattle and Aaron Dixon was appointed its captain. Seattle was the first chapter formed outside of California. What happened in Oakland had come to Seattle. In early September 1968, a group of black students had been attacked and threatened by white students. In response, Orange Panthers displayed rifles and shotguns on the grounds of Rainier Beach High School to defend black students. Mayor James Rahman warned the Panthers that city officials would not tolerate people taking the law into their own hands. Brahman asked the city council to strengthen the existing gun control ordinance to protect people from intimidation from dangerous weapons. On September 25th, the council passed an emergency measure prohibiting the display of a dangerous weapon to intimidate others. At the next session of the legislature in February 1969, the legislature sought to pass a similar bill. The Panthers decided to protest. Legislators heard rumors the Panthers were planning an invasion. On Wednesday, February 26th, the legislative leaders and the lieutenant governor, the governor was out of the state, met and made security plans. They decided to ram the bill through on the following day. The next day, 45 state troopers dressed in helmets and combat boots and carrying nightsticks patrolled every entrance and exit to the building. A machine gun was mounted on the top of the building. The Dixons heard what was happening from their younger brother, a legislative aide, to an old family friend. The brothers went to the Capitol, but were unarmed to avoid a confrontation. The legislation was passed at lightning speed through both houses, due in part to the Panthers' rumor. The governor signed the bill the next day, after dismissing the state patrol. The Panthers carried out their protest the day after that, when the dust had settled. The Seattle Panthers lost that day, but they went on to found a free medical clinic, still in operation today, the Carolyn Downs Clinic, five breakfast programs for school children, the first free food bank in the city, a prisoner visitation program, and free legal services for poor people. The Panthers continue to oppose police brutality and harassment. The Seattle chapter was also one of the longest-running Panther chapters, lasting until 1977. And that is our story for today. For the past is the past. I'm Harry Richardson. After today's rain showers, it's beginning to feel like spring here in southern Wisconsin. But as weather producer Caitlin Davis reminds us, it is only February after all, and more snow is inevitably on the way. Madison has not been able to figure out if it wants spring to come or if winter is still here. After a snowstorm took over Madison last Wednesday, things are finally starting to warm up, 
and flowers are starting to bloom in some places through the snow. And that leaves many asking, is that spring around the corner? Almost, but not quite yet. But as we move closer to the spring, the sun will rise a minute early and set a minute later, making the days longer. The sun is now rising at 6.35 a.m. and sets at 5.44 p.m. Believe it or not, the UV index is starting to present itself already. Although it is in the low category, you should still protect your skin from the sun. With the weather still being cold, many are still wearing long enough layers to cover their body, but don't forget to cover your face with sunscreen to prevent any skin damage. Throughout this week, we will be seeing a pattern of cloud coverage and mild wind speeds, which will make temperatures feel cooler than they actually will be. So keep in mind that actual temperatures will be much colder than what your weather app is saying. Current temperatures in Madison are sitting at 37 degrees, but only feeling to be around 30 degrees due to the winds blowing between 10 and 15 miles per hour. The humidity is sitting at 87% while we are still seeing some light rain across the area and 90% cloud coverage. Looking at tonight, temperatures are dropping down to 35 degrees with continued cloud coverage and low chances for some rain. Tuesday is looking to be in the upper 40s with a mix of clouds and sun throughout the day with mild winds blowing between 5 to 10 miles per hour coming from the north, northwest with humidity reaching 67%. There's a very low chance for rain throughout the day, but into the evening there's a much higher chance for precipitation, around 75%, with continued wind speeds between 5 to 10 miles per hour. The low will be in the low 30s with 81% humidity. Wednesday is looking to be overcast throughout the day, with mild winds again between 5 to 10 miles per hour blowing from the north. The high is looking to reach 42 degrees with 80% humidity. There again will be a low chance for precipitation throughout the day, but we will likely not be getting any. The night is looking to cool down quite a bit, dropping around 20 degrees lower from the high of the day with continued overcast conditions and winds still blowing between 5 to 10 miles per hour and high humidity sitting in the 80th percentile. Thursday is looking to cool from Wednesday with a high reaching the mid-30s. Mostly cloudy skies will be taking over with continued mild wind speeds looking yet again to stay between 5 to 10 miles per hour. Until the evening, clouds will completely take over and the low will drop all the way down to the low 20s and the wind speeds will increase between 10 to 15 miles per hour, making the evening feel very, very cold. Friday is looking to reach a high in the mid-30s, just like Thursday, but with variably cloudy skies with more clouds coming later in the day. Winds will drop back down between 5 to 10 miles per hour and a very slight chance for precipitation. Friday will drop down into the low 20s with mostly cloudy skies and continued high wind speeds. Over the weekend is looking to be rainy and in the upper 30s. Although there is no snow in the forecast for this week so far, you should still be aware of the slick roads with all of the precipitation that we will be seeing. To prevent hydroplaning, make sure you slow down and don't use cruise control while roads are wet. Stay clear of puddles or standing water, and you should probably inspect your tires to make sure they have enough tread before going out. I tried to break the ice around the Madison area to ask people what their favorite thing to do during a snowstorm is. Many gave me the cold shoulder, but with many hesitant to stop in the cold, snowy, and icy conditions, Here's what the few brave people had to say about their favorite thing to do during a snowstorm. 
Kyle, um, I enjoy sitting in my bed and watching a movie. Claudia, um, I like to make bread because it's like an all-day activity and it's like warm. I'm Hannah. I would have to say my favorite activity is to play Minecraft and watch the snow fall outside. Marie, I just like staying inside and bundling up watching it from the window with something hot to drink. Brianna, probably stay and make some warm drinks and then cuddle in and either like watch a movie or binge watch whatever show I'm watching but with the window open so I can see the snow. Amelia. Um, during a winter storm I like to stay indoors, watch a movie, clean the house, do something productive but indoors. Gabby. When it's stormy I like to stay inside and watch a movie and read a book. For WORT News I'm your weather producer Caitlin Davis. Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies on the small screen. First is an expensive-looking but mediocre BBC mockumentary, Kunk on Earth. Then, an important documentary called The Global Spyware Scandal, Exposing Pegasus, from PBS's Frontline. I'll be asking questions. What was the Soviet Union? And go to every corner of a globe without corners. Do we know if China has a roof? So join me, Philomena Kunk. This! Is Kunk on Earth! That was a clip from the trailer for Kunk on Earth, a mediocre five-episode BBC series that just started playing on Netflix. This is a fun premise that goes on too long. A mockumentary clearly making fun of those serious BBC docs on cultural history from Kenneth Clark's classic Civilization 50 years ago to those more recent natural history pieces by David Attenborough. Our interpreter in Kunk is Philomena Kunk, a comedic character performed for British TV for about 10 years by Diane Morgan. This series looks beautiful and is well staged with real British historians, presumably in on the joke, trying to answer Philomena's simplistic questions. She constantly mispronounces words while coming up with often amusing and clever dumb comments. The series plays it too safe, wanting to be satirical but not offend anyone, which is of course impossible. She starts off well on a high overlook of beautiful seemingly untouched nature with the line, that Kunk on Earth will be the incredible story of how humankind transformed our world from being a load of pointless nature. Reminding us of Attenborough, the early pieces were the best, with Philomena misinterpreting the meaning of early cave paintings. She felt the primitive paintings were pointless and didn't really tell a story, except perhaps for these people's mysterious portrayal of cows as deadly enemies. Later episodes note how man has not really changed his outlook on cows, with modern people corralling them, but still eating them. In another piece, she comments on, What was... Rene sauce. Was that a sort of 16th century ketchup? She comments on Beethoven. How are we supposed to know what it's about if it doesn't have any lyrics? It's literally pointless. There's a funny series comparing the world's religions where she makes fun of Christianity but carefully steers clear of saying anything about Islam. But after a while the jokes run thin, like in the latter episode that talks about the Soviet Union and the Russian Revolution just played to anti-Russian stereotypes, which in this period aren't as funny as they used to be. Perhaps the best way to watch the series would be one episode at a time, one week apart, so the humor would seem more fresh. But I watched several episodes in a row and came away kind of disappointed. I can't really recommend the series now playing on Netflix. Now for something more serious that I don't hesitate to endorse. It's a military weapon used against civilians. This is extremely serious for democracies. There is no control over how countries use it. And they have been using it in the worst way you could imagine. 
That was a clip from the trailer for the new PBS Frontline two-part special, Global Spyware Scandal, Exposing Pegasus. In the summer of 2020, Whistleblower handed French investigative journalists Laurent Richard and Sandrine Rigard a list of 50,000 phone numbers. They belonged to people attacked by a cyber surveillance software package called Pegasus. The powerful spyware has been sold to governments around the world by the Israeli company NSO Group. The doc shows its close government ties. The documentary tells the story of what the journalism non-profit Forbidden Stories and Amnesty International did with that leak of phone numbers. They suspected it contained numbers of people spied on by their own government. The Pegasus Project's reporting consortium was led by Forbidden Stories and included 16 other media organizations, Frontline among them, initially thought of the murder of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Sure enough, the phone number searched by Amnesty International Techie uncovered two numbers related to the journalist, his spouse, and his fiancée. The women allowed the techie access to their smartphones, and he was able to search through a list of respective calls and figure out likely entry points by Pegasus. The spyware, once it's in, sucks up all your data. It can even look at your camera and listen in through your microphone. Pegasus then spreads to anyone you call and can do the same thing to their phone. The women weren't alone. Pegasus was bought by government agencies, not just in Saudi Arabia, but in Mexico, Azerbaijan, France, Poland, Turkey, and the United Arab Emirates, UAE. The reporting eventually involved the work of 80 journalists working as a team for a year to break this major story, released on the same day in a number of major print publications, including the Washington Post, The Guardian from Britain, Le Monde in France, and others. The NSO denies any involvement in Khashoggi's murder and claims that it sells Pegasus to vetted governments for the sole purpose of preventing and investigating terror and serious crimes. Unfortunately, that is not the case, as is well documented in this great series, which recently started playing on Wisconsin PBS from Frontline. Since the series aired, the U.S. government has blacklisted the NSO but the global industry for commercial spyware continues to boom. Even the U.S. government is using it. I highly recommend this series. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer was Nate Carlin. Your reporter was Kelsey Krogan. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors Brenda Conkle, Dylan Brogan, and Harry Richardson, with technical production by Nicholas Leith. Thanks to Stu Levitan and Bert Zipper for fundraising assistance. Engineer Victor, the real Captain America Calzone, got the news on the air. Nate Weggehaupt produced this newscast, and Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Gene Delcourt. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Up next is the most freeform show on the radio dial, the Access Hour. Coming up right after these announcements. Good night. <laughs>